This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Females aged 16 to 19 are four times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. Approximately 1 in 7 girls and 1 in 25 boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18, and about 90% of children who are victims of sexual abuse know their abuser. In 2011, 79% of murders reported to the FBI were committed by friends, loved ones, or acquaintances. And in 2009, most of the homicides for which the FBI has location data were committed in the home. On December 28, 2010, a 16-year-old high school senior was in Baltimore, Maryland, visiting her half-sister for the holidays, when she disappeared without a trace. After an extensive search, media coverage, billboards, and a $36,000 reward, there were still no answers, until sadly, her body was discovered floating in a river nearly four months later, on April 20, 2011. A man was arrested and charged, but after three trials and seven long years, he was eventually acquitted leaving her family devastated that justice may never be served. This is the story of Felicia Barnes. Felicia Simone Barnes was born on January 12, 1994, to parents Russell Barnes and Janice Mustafa. I had trouble finding information such as her birthplace, family life, etc., which is common, but I think it may have more to do with the privacy of her family, and the ongoing investigation. What I did find was that she lived in Monroe, North Carolina with her mother, and her father lived in Atlanta, Georgia, following her parents' divorce. For those of you that are not familiar with the area, North Carolina is a state within the United States and is bordered by Virginia to the north, Tennessee to the west, South Carolina and Georgia to the south, and the Atlantic Ocean to the east. Its ocean shoreline is roughly 322 miles or 518 kilometers, making it a popular destination for beach vacations and diving, particularly shipwrecks. Another popular destination is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is the most visited national park in the U.S. with more than 12 million visitors in 2020 and straddles both Tennessee, and North Carolina. Monroe has a population of 32,797 as of 2010, 
and is roughly 30 minutes from the state's most populated city of Charlotte and a part of the larger metropolitan area. Felicia was an honor student at Union Academy Charter School located in Monroe and was planning on finishing high school early, setting her sights on attending Towson University or Tozen University, I'm not really sure how to pronounce that name, which is located in either Towson or Tozen, Maryland, and was studying early childhood education. The community is a subsection of the greater Baltimore area, and the university's campus is just 8 miles or 12 kilometers from the city's downtown core. She was very bright, friendly, and eager to pursue her dreams of becoming a teacher or counselor, as she loved working with children. Felicia also loved music, theater, and was very close to her family. Her father stating after her death, she, quote, had a lot going for her, loved by her family and friends who are still missing her tremendously, end quote. Following her parents' divorce, Felicia's father moved to Atlanta, Georgia, which is 276 miles or 444 kilometers from Monroe, so not too far, and she definitely kept in touch with her out-of-state family members, including her half-sister, Dina, who lived in Baltimore, Maryland, especially since Felicia planned on attending school in the same city. One article mentioned siblings in a plural sense, but I couldn't find much information about her family, siblings, or upbringing, as I previously mentioned, other than she connected with her siblings via the internet following her parents' divorce. Maryland is bordered by Virginia, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia to its southwest, Pennsylvania to its north, and Delaware and the Atlantic Ocean to the east. Baltimore is the most populated city in the state of Maryland, with 585,708 people as of 2020. And being a port city is known for shipping, ranking 9th for total dollar value of cargo, and 13th for cargo tonnage for all U.S. ports. It is also a popular tourist destination, with 24.5 million visitors recorded in 2014 and the Inner Harbor being the most visited area in the city, which showcases many historic ships and the National Aquarium. Felicia had gone to visit Dina in Baltimore sometime in late December. The specifics of her visit are not really discussed, but shortly before her visit, Dina and her longtime boyfriend, Michael Johnson, split up after about 10 years together, so perhaps it being the holidays, Felicia went to spend time with Dina and keep her company after the heartbreak. The events of the evening of December 28th are also somewhat unknown, but it is believed Felicia was walking over to nearby Risertown Road Plaza from her sister's apartment complex in the northwest area of Baltimore, roughly 15 to 20 minutes from the downtown core. She was last seen at the apartment complex and was never seen alive again. Initially, police believed Felicia to be a runaway and didn't pursue an investigation. Her father, Russell Barnes, traveled to Baltimore to begin searching for his daughter and convinced the police that there was no possible way that Felicia ran away, stating, quote, I told them Felicia's not a runaway. 
She doesn't have mother or father problems or family issues, end quote. By January 3rd, the police had publicly announced their concern for her whereabouts and began searching for the missing teen. Media outlets were delayed in reporting the missing teen as well, but eventually Felicia's story became nationwide news and her face was plastered everywhere, even appearing on a January 22nd America's Most Wanted episode. But unfortunately, no real leads were established as to her whereabouts. About three months after her disappearance, billboards were erected along major highways, urging the public to come forward with any information, and a $36,000 reward was offered. Then, on April 9th, a large-scale search was conducted at Patapsco State Park, roughly 12 miles or 19 kilometers from where Felicia was last spotted. A body was discovered during the search, but it did not belong to Felicia, nor was it related to her case. The same day, her classmates also held a carnival to raise money for search efforts. Sadly, not long after, on April 20, 2011, the nude body of 16-year-old Felicia Barnes was discovered by workers floating in the Conowingo Dam in the Susquehanna River, located in Northeast Maryland approximately 45 miles or 72 kilometers from her last known whereabouts. She was laid to rest in a private service on May 7, 2011 in Georgia, surrounded by family and loved ones. Additionally, a public service was held in Monroe, organized by her classmates, and a candlelight vigil was held in Baltimore outside of the apartment complex she was last seen, Riser Town Square Apartments. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a one-woman operation, I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have now started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. Again, I will leave links in the show notes of this episode. Please note my Patreon postings will be on hiatus until September 30th due to unforeseen personal circumstances, but rest assured these episodes will continue to be posted as scheduled. And as always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships every month to various charities that support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of September 2021 is Dress for Success Toronto. Since 2009, Dress for Success Toronto's mission has been, quote, to empower women to achieve economic independence by providing a network of support, professional attire, and the development tools to help women thrive in work and in life, end quote. 
gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. Weirdly, another body was also found nearby after the discovery of Felicia's remains, but the deceased male was believed not to be related. I just find it extremely coincidental that not one but two other bodies were found in the search for Felicia. It's just interesting, and I don't often hear of that happening. Initially, Felicia's cause of death was withheld from the public as the investigation into her now murder began, but later was revealed to be asphyxiation, either from strangulation or suffocation. And soon, police had narrowed down their list to one prime suspect the ex-boyfriend of her sister Dina, 27-year-old Michael Johnson. Prior to his official arrest on April 25, 2012, just over a year after her remains were discovered, police questioned Michael eight times and believed him to be the last person to have seen Felicia alive. Dina had also filed for a restraining order against Michael on September 6, 2011, but I am unsure if it was granted or not. This is where the details of the case become a bit disturbing. It was discovered that Michael had been in contact with Felicia, and in the six months prior to her disappearance, roughly 1,200 messages were sent between the two, and remember, she was just 16 at the time and he was 26. He maintained that she was like a little sister to him, but the investigation began to paint his intentions in a different light. Evidence was discovered in which both Dina, Michael, Felicia, and Michael's younger brother all engaged in, quote, naked touching. The videotaped encounter was from the previous June, and During the trial, a scenario in which Michael tried to touch Felicia, but she, quote, swatted him away, was described. It was also suggested the constant contact from Michael made Felicia feel uneasy and his presence made her uncomfortable. The night before she went missing, he and his brother both visited the apartment and his brother spent the night. The following morning, Michael came by to pick up his brother and drive him home. He then returned to the apartment to apparently do laundry and gather some belongings, as he lived with Dina at the apartment at the time of the breakup. At some point on the afternoon on December 28th, he texted Dina stating, quote, Little sis is up and active, end quote. He had also apparently been trying to reconcile with Dina that very morning, yet his phone was mysteriously turned off during the time Felicia went missing. He was spotted removing a large plastic tote bin, which prosecutors theorized he used to transfer Felicia's body out of the apartment, as he was apparently struggling to move it 
and was sweating. Their theory relied heavily on the idea Michael was obsessed with Felicia and was grooming her, which is defined as, quote, the criminal activity of becoming friends with a child in order to try and persuade the child to have a sexual relationship, end quote. They argued he came by when no one else was around unnecessarily and that the excessive text messages were inappropriate, even though none were viewed as sexually explicit or flirtatious in nature. I'm not sure where her sister was through all of this or her explanation for being involved in the sex tape that surfaced. I assume she was at work, but I still think it's strange he came by the apartment alone. Why not grab your things while your brother was there? Even if you genuinely look at her as a little sister, it just feels odd for a grown man to be alone with a young female, especially considering he was in the process of breaking up with her sister. Although I guess she would have stayed there before and likely was alone with him on previous occasions. After Felicia's body was found and prior to Michael's arrest, his phone was wiretapped and some interesting, potentially incriminating details were discussed. Such as he mentioned he was worried his DNA would be found under her fingernails because they quote wrestled that afternoon. He was also debating fleeing the country in anticipation of his arrest. He definitely saw the writing on the wall, whether because of his involvement or the questioning by police, stating, quote, I feel like everything is about to hit the fan. I don't know if I'm ready to deal with it. I still have options, not many, but I feel like I should pack up and leave. I don't want to, but that's how I feel. I mean, leave this country, babe, end quote. Michael also distanced himself from the family and didn't help in the search for Felicia, making the family question his involvement. But the most damaging piece of evidence was a man named James McRae who came forward after Michael was indicted, claiming he was called the day of Felicia's murder and saw her body in the apartment, and that Michael asked him for help in disposing of the body, saying he raped her and then killed her. Unfortunately, it isn't so cut and dry. Even though it definitely appears Michael is responsible for her murder, the evidence was all circumstantial, as key DNA evidence was destroyed by the water her body was found in, and the location of her murder was never proven. And as it turned out, James McRae had also come forward in other cases, claiming to know information, and he had errors in both the date and the location of the apartment in Felicia's case. The defense was also not made aware of the question of James McRae's credibility in another case until after Michael's first trial, which I'll go to in, in a minute. I'm also not sure of how James and Michael knew each other, and why he would have called James of all people. That is something I, I just couldn't find. So if you have that information, please share it on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast or my Facebook discussion group. I'll also have photos posted from this case if you're interested. The defense countered each and every point the prosecution brought forth, 
stating the large plastic tote bin was simply him moving his belongings out, that the text messages were friendly and not at all nefarious in nature, and that the investigation focused solely on Michael from the start, which let other potential leads fall to the wayside. They also said the incriminating wiretap only showed an innocent man becoming fearful as the investigation began to focus on him. The tote bin in question was also never recovered, and her sister Dina gave conflicting testimony about if it was actually missing or not, leading to more doubt. The judge also stated that the theory of obsession was not adequately proven at trial. On February 6, 2013, after nine and a half hours of deliberation, Michael was acquitted of first-degree murder, but was found guilty of second-degree murder. And if you don't understand the difference, first-degree means it was premeditated, which the prosecution was trying to prove based on James McRae's testimony, that he went by specifically when no one would be home, to commit the murder after becoming obsessed with her and attempting to groom her into sexual acts. Second degree is a lesser charge in that the murder still took place but wasn't premeditated. The defense attorney Ivan Bates stated after the verdict was announced, quote, anytime you're the state and you're bringing a high profile murder case such as this, you have to have a first degree conviction and they did not. So I think that speaks volumes for their case. And then when you see the jury come back with second degree on this type of case, then to me, that shows a compromise. There were a number of issues the jury was having as well, end quote. As I mentioned before, because the information about James McRae's lack of credibility not being handed over to Michael's attorney prior to his conviction, the second-degree conviction was overturned, and the second trial was scheduled. But during that trial, Judge John Addison Howard declared a mistrial after the jury accidentally heard part of a recording they were not supposed to hear. He then reversed that decision and granted a, quote, motion for judgment of acquittal, end quote claiming he did not feel that the prosecution was successful in proving their arguments. The prosecution appealed the judge's verdict, and once again, that decision was overturned, and a third trial occurred. But after seven years, on March 30, 2018, Michael Johnson was acquitted of all charges and released as a free man. His lawyer subsequently filed a civil lawsuit for $750,000 against a homicide detective that handled the case, and I'm not sure of the results of that lawsuit. A statement issued from the prosecution, Baltimore City's state attorney, Marilyn Mosby, read, quote, since the inception of my administration, I swore to fight for 16-year-old Felicia Barnes, who was murdered in 2010. And for the past three years, we've fought all the way to the state's highest court and back. We never wavered in our pursuit of justice for the Barnes family and the innocent child that tragically lost her life. 
We believe, based on the evidence presented to us, that we were pursuing the individual responsible for her murder. But the justice system has run its course, and we must now respect the court's decision. This outcome does not change the fact that the family of Felicia Barnes has suffered tremendous loss, and we will continue to support them as they continue to grieve and cope with this difficult development. End quote. It was clear her family believed without a doubt that Michael was involved, and I can't imagine the heartbreak they must feel. After the first trial, her father stated, quote, It's a crazy feeling when someone who was a part of the family takes another part of the family, end quote. And her mother added, quote, The elephant took one of his feet off my chest so I can breathe a little bit now, end quote. My heart goes out to them and her whole family. Sadly, I don't know if justice will ever be served for Felicia Barnes. If Michael really did commit the murder, he has now been set free and will never be held accountable for his crimes. If he didn't, then someone else got away with murder, and little to no evidence is available that even points towards another person being involved. I'm not sure. The only thing I can reason is perhaps his younger brother committed the crime prior to him arriving in the morning, and then he covered it up. But I feel like when more than one person is involved, the truth somehow always comes out. And honestly, I think Michael Johnson will likely take the truth to his grave. To keep her memory alive and help prevent future families from enduring the same heartache, Felicia's law was created, quote, requiring state officials to publish a list of missing children, annual stats, and a list of volunteers who can help police search for missing kids, end quote. A foundation was also established in Felicia's name, which strives to bring awareness to missing children and bring them home safely. The hashtag Purple Tuesday was also created to highlight missing children. I'll leave a link to the foundation's Facebook page in the show notes of this episode. And in the end, a smart, beautiful, and kind young woman who only wanted the chance to reach her dreams and help others was instead taken much too soon leaving a hole in the hearts of everyone that knew her. Thank you for listening to the story of Felicia Barnes. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.